Good morning and welcome to Northminster. Today is Pentecost Sunday, the day in sacred time where we mark the story of the Spirit poured out on all of God's people. It's a day when we celebrate the gift of the Spirit blowing where it will. It's a day when we come up against the limitations of words and sometimes all we can do is dance. Today, we will encounter that story of Pentecost through liturgical dance offered by Kaylee Grassi, and we will also be honoring Kaylee at the end of our service today as a graduating senior. So many of our sacred stories are about a people who are afraid of God, who think that somehow God is out there or up there because they're not good enough or worthy enough or clean enough for God to be here among us. There was a special room in the temple, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was said to dwell. The priests would draw lots to see who had to push through the heavy veil and go in on very special occasions. You know, some stories even say that they would tie a rope around the priest's ankle so that the other priest could pull him out in the event that, because of some unconfessed sin, God would strike him dead. When Jesus died, though, our stories say that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom and the Holy of Holies was exposed and it was empty. And many who saw it had to ask the panicked question, where is God? That's a familiar question. And Pentecost is the day we find out. It's the day when we learn the scandalous lesson that God is with the people, in the people, the clean people, the unclean people, the good, the bad, on the streets and in our homes, everywhere, still breaking through in doves and tongues of fire, still illuminating and comforting and healing and challenging and causing trouble. If only we would open our eyes to see it. That is what Pentecost is about. Now, would you join me in blessing this time together? Do you not know, the Apostle Paul asked, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Do you not know, he continues to ask, that the divine spark resides in you? Do you not know that the image of God is your birthright? Do you not know that God took on flesh so that your flesh might take on God? May this be a place where you remember the truth you may have forgotten. May this be a place where you dare to believe it might be true. May this be a moment where you let go of the guilt, the shame, and the distractions, and just for a moment, know yourself already one with all. Let us worship God together this morning. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place.
and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them and rested on each of them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and though they all spoke in many different languages, they understood each other and were of one accord. from the prophet Joel, in the last days, God declares, I will pour out my spirit and your sons and daughters will prophesy. The young shall see visions and the old will dream dreams and all who understand God's love will find peace.
Would you join me in prayer? As we so often do, let's begin by breathing in deeply. Breathe in and know that God is love. Breathe out and release the fear that binds you. Week after week, we have gathered here together and begun our time with the gift of breath. Lately, we've been jarred into a recognition of the gift that breath is by all those in this pandemic who are deprived of it, whose lungs are failing them, whose bodies are ravaged by this disease of the breath. Oh God, in your mercy, hear our prayer for our sisters and brothers who struggle to breathe. For their mothers and fathers, their children, their loved ones who long for nothing more than to breathe a prayer over them in a hospital room in a time when even that has been denied to so many. Hear our prayer, O God. And then may we take action to do our part to slow the spread, even when it's uncomfortable, even when we feel silly, even when we would rather act as if back to normal were already here. For a hundred thousand lives lost, for a hundred thousand families this morning, many of them, too many, the families and loved ones of people of color disproportionately affected, disproportionately served, disproportionately dying. We offer up our prayer and lament. O oh God, week after week, as we have gathered here, we have gathered in a nation, in a state and a city in which our brothers and sisters of color were already struggling to breathe. For too many, the crisis of this virus is nothing new, just one more pebble on a mountain of injustice, of unexamined privilege, of unrestrained exploitation and abuse and death dealing. I can't breathe. The words of George Floyd ring in our ears, I can't breathe. The same words of Eric Garner before him, I can't breathe. O oh God, in your mercy, hear our prayer for our sisters and brothers who struggle to breathe. Hear our prayer, O oh God, the one who breathes life, the one who animates, who creates us and calls forth humanity to co-create with you. In truth, we, the created ones, are those who must now breathe life into this broken and bleeding world. We are the ones who must act to become the answer to our prayers. Why are we looking at the sky? As long as there is breath in our lungs, let us recognize it for the privilege that it is and give thanks to God. And then use the breath we have been granted to lift up our voices, to amplify the voices of those whose lived experience is different than our own, so often oppressed by our own. And isn't that the whole point of Pentecost anyway? This day when we celebrate the Ruah, the wind, the breath of God rushing in and ruffling feathers, causing those who had never had ears to hear one another before to somehow find the gift of listening, the gift of understanding. Let everything that has breath praise the God of love and mercy. And for every blessed one who doesn't, 
who has had the breath choked out of their lungs, whether through force or through unjust systems, through mass incarceration or the cycle of generational poverty, whether through the malicious intent of one bad apple or through the malignant cancer of the slow and steady gait of the white moderate. O oh God, we lift our voice in anguish and lament. Amen. Friends, I usually try to end my prayers on a note of hope. No matter how dark or how long the night, we are a people who trust that joy comes in the morning. But sometimes we just need to lament. And sometimes even in the act of lamenting, in the telling and retelling of tragedy, in speaking their names and telling their stories over and over again, we find that hope sneaks in. And in fact, it's the only way true hope has ever been found. In the words of composer and playwright, Aeneas Mitchell, it's a sad tale. It's a tragedy. But we sing it anyway. Because here's the thing. To know how it ends and still begin to sing it again as if it might turn out this time. It's the only way we'll ever be able to see how the world could be in spite of the way that it is. And so in the spirit of how the world could be, while yet acknowledging the way that it is, we've asked Justin Havard and Chad Sonka to lead us in singing, lift every voice and sing as our song of response. It's a hymn we've sung before at Northminster and as powerful as the music is, we are careful when we sing it to acknowledge that as a song that emerged out of black tradition, out of the black struggle, for most of us here, that means this is a song we sing in solidarity with our sisters and brothers in the black community. We don't pretend that the words are ours or that we fully comprehend their meaning or their pain, but we can lift our voices in unison to amplify these words of their cause. As our prayerful response during this song, I invite you to fight the feeling of being overwhelmed and instead to focus in on what one step, what one action you can take in the next week to move us forward from the way things are to the way our God dreams they can be. Let us listen, let us dream, and let us sing.
a reading from the book of Numbers. Yahweh said to Moses, Gather together seventy of your elders, those you know who are leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting and take their place there with you. I will come down and speak to you there. I will take some of the spirit that lives in you and give it to them. They will share the burden of your people so that you do not have to carry all of it by yourself. So Moses went and told the people what God had said. He gathered 70 elders and had them surround the tent. Yahweh came down in a cloud and spoke to Moses. Taking some of the spirit that was in Moses, God bestowed it on the 70 elders who Moses had gathered there. And as the Spirit came to rest on them, they were seized with prophesying and did not stop. Now two other elders, one named Eldad and the other Medad, were not in the gathering but had stayed behind in the camp. They had been summoned to the tent but had not gone. Yet the Spirit came to rest on them and they prophesied in the camp. When the youth came running to tell Moses, Eldad and Meldad are prophesying in the camp, Joshua ben Nun, who had, who had from the youth been Moses' aide, cried, Moses, stop them. But Moses answered, Are you jealous for my sake? If only all of God's people were prophets, if only Yahweh could bestow the Spirit on them all. Then Moses returned to the camp with the elders. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. The story of Jesus' death and resurrection has been rolling over and over in the church's heart for a very long time, but we can't seem to get on the same page about what it means. Over thousands of years, we've come up with several theories about what it's all about, what it actually accomplishes in the story of the people of God. I know you've probably got your favorite theory, whether you know it or not, some interpretive key that makes all of this make sense for you. Some theories are about metaphysical deals between God and Satan, or an angry God demanding a blood sacrifice, but I'm guessing those don't exactly take root in your soul. Frankly, they leave a bad taste in my mouth, and I think they've done a lot more damage than they have good. I bring this up today because one of the deepest meanings of the Jesus story, for me, the key that makes it all make sense, is found in the story of Pentecost. To me, the story of the Spirit unleashed into the world is at the heart, not only of the Jesus story, but at the entire story of what it means to be human. Pentecost is about what everything has always been about, from the beginning to the end. Let me show you what I mean by that. In the beginning, God breathed God's Spirit into the dust, and it became a living being. The perfect union of dust and divine, the eternal in the temporal, the great in the small, as innate as the nose on its face was the spirit at its being. And that spirit was the source of all love and trust and joy and peace. And the human lived their days in trust and acceptance and contentment. But then a voice whispered in its ear, you know, you're not enough, it hissed. To be enough, you have to know more. You have to achieve more. How can you just accept yourself as you are? You are ignorant. Look at yourself. Look at your body. Shouldn't you be ashamed? Come on. You're not enough. Not yet, anyway. Different generations have found different names for this voice. The accuser, the adversary, the false self, the ego. But whatever we call it, we all know it well. It usually shows up when we're about 12 or 13, drawing boundaries and conditions around our worth. And it changes everything. 
In this story, which is also our story, the accuser's voice finds a foothold, and the human wonders if maybe it's right. And then the human is sure that it's right. So they sew together fig leaves to cover themselves, and they hide away, certain that they're somehow displeasing, that love could not reach so far as to cover their perceived iniquity. Shame and doubt stretch out like a thick veil and cover over the light of the Spirit. But it can't put it out. And so it begins. Freed from their Egyptian captors, the people of Israel gather at the edge of the holy mountain. At the top, the tongues of flame leap high into the air, and a thunderous voice dictates the laws by which they should live. I shall be your God, the voice booms, and you shall be my people. Again, God with God's people and the people with their God, a society ordered by trust and justice and plenty. But then... That voice whispers in an Israelite's ear. You're not good enough, it warned. You are not clean enough to be in the presence of a holy God. It would consume you. Look at yourself, sinner that you are, harboring thoughts and desires so dark, no one would love you if they knew. Well, God knows so why should God love you? And then in the ear of another, you are not safe enough. Turn your eye to that fire, that uncontained, unpredictable passion. It threatens to consume you all. And the voice finds a foothold, and the people grow afraid. Moses, they beg, you speak to God for us, and we will listen. We can't bear to hear the voice of God for ourselves. We won't survive it. What? Moses asks, pushing back. Don't be afraid. This is the God that brought you up out of Egypt. But Israel doesn't believe. And the people move some distance away, putting a priest and several miles of desert between themselves and this presence offering a new life. And so it goes. Wandering in the desert in a seemingly endless quest for the promised land, an elite few are chosen to help Moses in the work of leadership and discernment. The arrangement is that God will pour God's Spirit out on these select few who are considered worthy, who have gathered at a certain place at a certain time. The Spirit, however, ever the troublemaker, also wanders off into the unclean masses of the camp. It danced around those who were too afraid to approach the mountain. And there it comes to rest on two elders, Eldad and Medad. Elders who had not obeyed the call to gather at the certain place, at the certain time. And all the same, they open their mouths and they begin to prophesy. The voice of God intertwining with their own and singing the song of the cosmos. And the people stand in awe, surprise taking them beyond their fear, for the first time imagining a world where such things could be possible. But then a voice whispers in Joshua's ear, They don't know enough to prophesy, it accuses. Who are they compared to your great Moses? They did not come to the gathering when they were called. They have not earned this. You are far more loyal and obedient than they are, and yet the Spirit has not fallen on you, has it? And the voice finds a foothold. And Joshua is furious. Moses, he cries, you have to stop them. Joshua, Moses says, still caught up in the joy of the scene unfolding before him. Are you jealous for my sake? Joshua, this, and he gestures to Eldad and Medad, this is what it's always been about. I wish that all the people were prophets, a whole nation of prophets, the Spirit of God blazing through human flesh. But Joshua, along with the rest of the elders, separate themselves from Eldad and Medad with a wall of bitter suspicion. 
And the camp sees them and follows their lead. And so it goes. On and on, the people of God, glimpsing the Spirit within and among them, hearing the voices, accusations, and then covering over the light with something easier to look at. That's the pattern. The prophets looked forward to the day when the people would finally understand, would transcend their judgment and their pageantry and recognize the joy and the love and the peace that is already theirs. They look forward to the day when everyone, regardless of gender and social status, will let go and remember who they are, that they would share in God's dream. But on and on, the shouts of the prophets are drowned out by the constant humming whisper of the accuser. And so it goes. Until one day, when the story is interrupted. A young girl conceives a child out of wedlock, his parentage uncertain, their future bleak. She is very afraid. And the voice of the accuser whispers in her ear like so many others, You are no longer good enough for your fiancé, it tisks, or your parents. Why would they want you now? Oh, how ashamed you must feel. No one would be caught dead with you after this. You are alone. And the accuser's voice easily finds a foothold, but then... A different voice, speaking words that had failed to find a foothold in earlier generations, and it says, don't be afraid. And it casts a new vision on the horizon, no longer a sunset, but a sunrise. You are a beloved daughter of God, and so is your child, it says. You will give birth to a son, and he will do wondrous things. Custom and scandals be damned. This is a child of God, and so are you. Will you believe it? Because if you do, it could be the beginning of something brand new. And then she does what her ancestors could not. She believes it. And against all odds, her fiancé believes it, and grace begins to tear at the veil, and they catch a glimpse of that spirit again. Weary from traveling, Jesus chooses to stay in Mary and Martha's home. After dinner, he sits reclined on the ground, telling stories as Martha watches him, watches those sitting enraptured at his feet, including her sister, It looks to her that there is nowhere else that Jesus would rather be than with these people in this moment. And Martha imagines herself sitting there next to her sister, hearing about the possibilities of the kingdom of God, imagining Jesus delighting in her company as well. And she takes a step, but then the voice of the accuser whispers in her ear, Hold on, it halts. You haven't done enough, and you don't have the time. They would think you were lazy, and frankly, they'd be right. Look at the state of your home. Why would they want you to join them before you finish your work? Your work, which never does seem to be finished, does it? The voice finds a foothold, and Martha feels a shame, which easily overflows into anger. Mary! She whispers harshly, get up and come help me. Look at this place. And she begins to move away from Jesus, to put a room between them, taking her sister with her. But Jesus interrupts. Hold on, he says. Martha, you're worried about so many things, but only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that thing. The work doesn't have to be done for you to step away from it, for you to enjoy being with the ones you love. You've done enough. Martha, you are enough. Let the house be a mess. We'll all help with it in the morning, but look around. No one accuses you but yourself. And Martha 
believes him. She lets go and rests in grace, in the present elusive spirit of joy, and she never forgets that night, especially during what followed. Over time, Jesus' grace grows wilder and the accuser grows more desperate. Desperate for safety, desperate to keep things the way they are. Reasonable motives, really. And so begins to tell all who will listen that Jesus is a grave threat. Oh, and the people listen. Jesus is arrested. And just like that, he's gone. But three days later, though, he comes back, confounding the accuser's rules and leaving the disciples reeling and confused. What does this mean? They ask. What has it all meant? Familiar questions. And 50 days later, they find out. The disciples gather in one room. It's now the festival of Pentecost the completion of the harvest when they tell of the day that the law came down from Mount Sinai. Freed from their Egyptian captors, one of them preaches the familiar story. The people of Israel gathered at the edge of the holy mountain, and at the top tongues of flame leapt high into the air, and a thunderous voice dictated the laws by which they were to live. I shall be your God, the voice boomed, and you shall be my people. And as the disciples pondered this, they too heard the familiar whisper. But you are not clean enough to be accepted, it said to one. God would strike you dead. To another disciple it chided, but you are not good enough, sinner that you are. Think about what you've done. You abandoned your friend. And now you're hiding up here. Why should you be loved, you coward? And then urgently in the ear of another, you aren't safe enough here. Look at the fire, the uncontained passion and unpredictability. You will be consumed just like Jesus was. And the voice begins to find a foothold as it always does. But then an interruption. Another voice. That's not true the voice says firmly. When I looked upon unclean skin, did I recoil or did I touch it with tenderness? When I saw your deepest shame, did I throw a stone or did I embrace you with a grace that ran just as deep? In the ear of another disciple, it says again, it's not true. Remember the way we'd pool our resources and feed the people? Had they done anything to deserve that? Did they earn it somehow? Remember when the soldiers stripped me of my dignity and cast lots from my clothes? Did I condemn them and curse their name? Or did I say, Abba, forgive them because they just don't understand? You may have abandoned me, but did I ever abandon you? Was I not waiting for you? three days later, with open arms and with breakfast. And to the third, it says again, that's not true. I may have been consumed by fire, but in so doing, I was and am more alive than so many who walk around dead to their own heart, dead to the world, living but not alive. Risk and death to be consumed. These are the only ways into eternal life. Children of God, it said to them all as they remembered the stories, you are enough right now, just as you are. And the voice of the accuser for the first time can't find a foothold anywhere because it's exposed and it's empty. And it always has been. And with that, for the first time, the dams are broken and the Spirit pours forth. And so it goes.
Over thousands of years, the church has come up with several theories about what it's all about, about what the Jesus story actually accomplishes in the story of the people of God. And one of those is called the ransom theory. It suggests that somehow Jesus ransomed us from the power of Satan. And before you roll your eyes, did you know that the word Satan is not actually a proper noun? Did you know that it's a generic Hebrew noun that most literally translates to the accuser? As in, in a courtroom, you'd have the prosecuting Satan, or the accuser, on one side, arguing all of the reasons that you deserve judgment. And through that lens, things start to make a little more sense. Perhaps there is something from which Jesus' grace ransoms us. Different generations have found different names for the voice, the accuser, the Satan, the adversary, the false self, the ego, but we all know it well. It is that voice which stands between you and love. It is that voice obsessed with safety and accomplishment that finds infinite ways of telling you that you are not enough, that you are not worthy, that it is not okay to take a break, and that it is not okay to accept yourself to accept the world as it is and enjoy it, and it is a liar. What if the Pentecost story isn't powerful because it's about a spirit being bestowed or poured out from somewhere else? What if it's powerful because it is the human story about what finally happens when the voice of the accuser is met with the voice of grace? What if Pentecost is what the story of Jesus is really all about? What happens when we dare to believe that we don't have to be good enough or clean enough or safe enough or to have accomplished enough for someone to come in and love us, to die for us just as we are? It's the very first image in Scripture. God breathing a spirit of love into humanity, the union of dust and divine. And it's the very last image in Scripture, the great wedding banquet between God and humanity, the union of dust and divine. It's everything in between. It's where we came from, and it's where we're going. It's now, and it's at hand, waiting to be embraced. And when we dare believe it, Then a sound like a violent rushing wind from heaven, a noise will fill all the earth, and the fire of life will course through our hands, will rest on our heads, will ignite our voices with the universal language of grace, and the world will never be the same. Amen. And happy Pentecost.
Around this table, we remember Jesus' words, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Around this table, we eat the bread of life, knowing that God is as much a part of us, is as close to us as this bread that we receive. So let us do this in remembrance of him. Around this table, we remember Jesus' words, I am the living water. Whoever comes to me will never be thirsty. Around this table, we drink the living water, knowing that the Spirit of God will become in us a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let us do this in remembrance of him. People of God, in the bread and the wine, may you behold what you really are and become more fully what you receive. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for being here. We hope that this experience has somehow opened you in some way to God's presence so that we can go forth from this place in the likeness of Christ. We have a few announcements before we disperse. As we mentioned earlier in the service, today we want to recognize Kaylee Grassi, who graduated from West Monroe High School. Over the years, Kaylee has graced our congregation not only with her gift of dance, but with her kind and generous spirit. Kaylee is one of so many graduating seniors this year who have seen major milestones that were just within reach disappear before their eyes. And Kaylee, we want you to know that despite the disappointment of how your senior year has concluded, we see you and we love you. And your church family is supporting you and cheering you on as you look forward to the days ahead. As is our tradition at Northminster, Kaylee was presented with a graduation Bible. And Kaylee, we pray that as you move forward into young adulthood, the stories of scripture will provide you with grounding, with a larger story within which you can locate the story that God is calling you into in your own life. We bless you on that journey ahead. Joanne Alley, who has worked with our teenagers, wanted to offer a few words of blessing for Kaylee as well. Dear Kaylee, congratulations on your graduation from high school. Your church family is honored to share this time with you and your family. We have participated in your education through youth group and BYC. The mountain and the people there touch all of us whether we are youth or adults. We have watched your family grow and welcomed your sisters with you. We have seen you dance with your mother Mackenzie. We have mourned with you, your family, and your mother Janie when you lost your grandmother. We have witnessed your baptism. Remember as you enter your life after high school that your church family is with you to rejoice, to mourn, to dance, and to grow with you. Blessings on you and your future. Amen. 
Congratulations, Kaylee. To give a quick update on where we are in our discernment and our planning, the Coordinating Council met last Sunday to talk through some of the main themes that emerged in our communal stories and what they mean for our collective identity. With our story and values outlined with more clarity, the commissions are meeting this week and next week to talk about what it might mean for them to write the next chapter in this season during exile. Remember that our Holy Ideas Board virtually is still very much open if you have ideas. As always, please check the newsletter for more information about what's going on in the life of the church. And don't forget to give. Remember, we are continuing to pay our choral scholars, our child care worker, and our staff, so your contributions are greatly appreciated. Now, people of God, receive this benediction. When Moses came down from the mountain, he carried with him the glow of God's presence on his face illuminating and warming everything around him. Leaving this place, may you also carry the glow of God's presence. May you carry with you the radiance of God's spirit, which burns without ceasing in your deepest, truest self. You are seen and you are loved. Go in peace. One day, when the glory comes, it will be us, it will be us, oh, one day, when the battle's won, we will be sure, we will be sure, oh, heavens no man no weapon formed against yes glory is destined every day women and men become legends sins that go against our skins become blessings the movement is a rhythm to us freedom is like religion to us justice is juxtaposition in us justice for all just ain't specific enough one son died, his spirit is revisiting us Truant living, living in us Resistance is us That's why Rosa sat on the bus That's why we walked through Ferguson With our hands up Cause when it goes down We woman and man up They say stay down And we stand up Shots we on the ground The camera panned up King pointed to the mountaintop And we ran up
Selma is now for every man, woman, and child. Even Jesus got his crown in front of a crowd. They marched with the torch, we gon' run with it now. Never looking back, we done gone hundreds of miles. From dark roads, heroes, to become a hero. Facing the league of justice, his power was the people. Enemy is lethal, a king became regal. Saw the face of Jim Crow under a bald eagle. The biggest weapon is to stay peaceful. We sing, our music is the cuts that we bleed through. Somewhere in the dream we had an epiphany. Now we right the wrongs in history. No one can win the war individually. It takes the wisdom of the elders and young people's energy. Welcome to the story we call victory. The coming of the Lord, my eyes have seen the glory.